Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, we have cybersecurity expert, A.L. Benishti. A.L. has spent more than a decade in the information security industry with a focus on software R&D for startups and enterprises. In 2013, A.L. founded Iron Scales, which provides phishing mitigation and training solutions for organizations. Iron Scales focuses on ensuring that people can protect the organization in situations where traditional technology isn't enough. A.L., welcome to the podcast, my friend. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yes, Hello. we are excited to have you. Um, man, I'm, I'm just so uh, curious. Tell us a little bit about the product. I know we just uh, kind of introduced it as being uh, for emails and cybersecurity and that kind of thing. But uh, take us back to how did you start this company? What was the inspiration for that? And what really it's doing uh, today? So before starting the company, I was um, I was a security researcher working for a couple of um, Israeli cybersecurity vendors, kind of focusing mostly on malware, on malicious software. You know how it's working. What can we do in order to to do a better job stopping it um, and fighting against it? And then I realized that most of the malware that I'm researching or reversing um, in order to study are coming to the organization via email. Mm. And that, then the idea sparked off like, you know, how instead of focusing on the on the malware, on the actual venom, how how can we solve the the email problem, the vehicle, the, the one that is actually driving this kind of bad stuff into the organization. Sure. And that then was that I decided to kind of um, quit and build a company and focus around email security. And when you had this idea, because it makes perfectly logical sense that we wouldn't just try to attack the malware, but the vehicle in which is delivered. Were there already other companies doing this? Was it somewhat of a saturated market or were you first to market? Like how, what, what was that like? So there was some companies taking some initial uh, first steps in innovating around email security because back then, you know, companies started to realize that we will not be able to stop emails just by, um, you know, relying on technology alone. We need to have the human uh, component kind of compiled into the, the solution. Uh, and back then, we, s- we started to see companies that are focusing on user training, um, understanding that you know the filter, the, the defenses will never be perfect. Um, sure. There's no silver bullet. And starting to focus on what is now called the post-delivery, which is what happens when the bad emails is already in the employment boxes. How we make sure that, um, that it's not clicking? How do we reduce risk? And awareness and training was the first step toward the kind of technologies that we we see today, and you know uh, where Iron Skills actually started um, as a company, focusing on the human factor. Got it. So at first, it started with the awareness for me as said employee looking at my inbox, being able to spot a fishy email, and knowing what to do with it. Yeah. Then did it grow from there into a more of a technology component? matching with the human component? Yeah, so, so our vision and philosophy from, from day one was to kind of create an, what we call today, hybrid intelligence platform, which means how can we use technology and human intelligence, how they can go hand in hand in creating a much uh, a much better protection uh, protection layer. Yeah. So we, we started with the human and we trained the human, human how to spot phishing. But from day one, we said, hey, your job as an employee is not just to smile, avoid, delete, and, and keep going. Your job is like, you know, if you see something, say something. So the next step was to kind of give them a button inside their Outlook or Gmail or whatever and say, hey, if, you, if based on what we've taught you so far, you see something suspicious, please let us know as an organization, not as Google or Microsoft or whatever, we, the security team of the organization, we need to make sure that they know and they can act upon it. So we took a more proactive approach with kind of, you know, going above and beyond just awareness and actually bringing the human element into, into this game in a, in a very interactive and, and fun way. I love it. So you go from being 
an employee for somebody else's company in the cybersecurity business to starting Iron Scales, your own solution to a problem you see inside of cybersecurity. What's that initial team size? Is it you for a year, just solo out there? Did you have some early team members? Like, what did that look like? So it was me. I was a one-man show for almost two years before I raised my uh, my seed round uh, from a local Israeli um, investor. Wow! So I was basically doing the the coding, the selling, the support, uh, the actual operations, and everything, kind of running running around, running in circles. Super challenging, but um, it was fun. Wow. Okay. So yeah, one man show for two years, and I'm, I'm assuming you got somewhat of enough of a proof of concept to be able to raise a seed round. Yeah. Uh, how did that go? I, I'm curious people have a, a variety of opinions on raising capital. And I'm curious for you looking back, like what kind of experience was that for you and your opinions on it? So bootstrapping a company to the, to the, to the point when I had about 15 paying customers, including some big banks and telco companies back in Israel. Um, and the fact that I was kind of um, heavily involved with the, with the local 8200 uh, community, which is one of the best incubation program back in, in Tel Aviv to cybersecurity companies and kind of the networks that it's, it's creating was really driving investors that were looking to kind of make their first investments in cybersecurity, which is, again, uh, five years ago, it was still... Um, it wasn't that hyped as uh, as it's today, right? And and I believe that this initial traction and the fact that I could put them in front of um, you know chief information security officers of you know respected big banks and, and other companies that say yes, we we see a tremendous value um, using this product was really making the the fundraising process much less painful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so overall for you, has it been a, a positive experience where you're grateful for it? I'm sure it's got its pros and cons, but overall, has it been a positive thing or something you would yeah, it's, do differently? It's, it's, it's a super positive, uh, it was super positive for me. Um, I think that, you know, if you want to be, build something big, um, you know, bootstrapping all your way to, to, to a huge company or IPO, it's, it's not impossible, but it's, very, very hard. Sure. Getting the funds that you need in order to build a team and invest more in, you know, in the product, but in marketing and sales as well, um, was a very smart move that I'm Yeah, especially I'm in the happy. tech space. It seems, my, my outside of, uh, observation is it seems like it's a harder journey to bootstrap all the way to the top inside of the tech space than maybe some other, some other kind of spaces. Is that, is that true? Especially these days when, you know, the market is hyped and there's lots of money that is being invested in, in tech and cybersecurity in specific in order to stay competitive and, you know, be able to move fast because, you know, we need to move fast, not just because the competition or the market is moving fast, because the threat actors are moving super fast and they're coming sure. with new challenges that we need R&D power and, you know, we need the best people out there in order to, to tackle those issues. So was it after that initial investment that you were able to have the capital to, to, to get your first hires, employees, team members, that kind of thing? And if so, what was, what was that size? Was it 10, your first 10 employees? Was it your first 50? Like, where did it go from solo show to I have a team now? So, so we went from solo to three and then seven. And then at some point we hit the, the 12 mark. Um, and then we raised a series A, and it was almost two years after uh, the seed round that we okay. raised the series A uh, here in the US. Gotcha. Oh, okay. So at that point, was it in those first two years after the seed round that you moved from Tel Aviv to the United States? No, I stayed in Tel Aviv. Um, I stayed in Tel Aviv. We we're running the business in Tel Aviv. We we're focusing on the Israel and European market mostly. We we're selling to the US, but not in, in great numbers. And when we raised, when we took Series A, it was kind of, you know, uh, a, a tipping point when we decided that it's time to, to move to the to the big market, to the real market, as it's considered by... Uh, <laughs> Many investors out there, and yeah, at some point, which is almost two years ago, I I moved here to to the U.S. myself in order to build the the team, the operation, and support sales. Love it. So, what was that? Uh, as you look back on that, 
what were some of the biggest shifts uh, for you personally? Obvious, the obvious one would be, hey, I was by myself, now I have a team. But it is a different mindset. It is a different even uh, demand on yourself to lead yourself and now have to, to be responsible for others and putting them in the right position and hiring the right people. What was that like for you as the founder going from solo to, to now having a team you're leading? Um, for me, it was a pretty smooth transition because I had managerial experience in, in my past. I was leading, leading teams. I was leading soldiers in the army. I'm an officer. You know, I have this background um, as well. So leading and managing people was not new to me. Doing it in a business environment when, you know, from being one that, you know, um, can plan, do, decide uh, and do everything in a single kind of, as a single minded person, now to convey messages and communicate and, you know, um, let people know what's the vision, what are we chasing um, and make sure that, you know, we are all going in the same direction, working on the same things uh, was kind of, you know, in the team at seven, it was easier as the team grows it's becoming more challenging obviously sure sure yeah you have that more organic stage at the beginning where communications not quite as complicated because there's less lines of communication and trust is built easier and all those kinds of things right yeah, we're sitting all in the same room and remember in the beginning of the days we're all in the same big room if you need to communicate with someone it's just you know raising heads and you know shouting over the <laughs> <laughs> the other side of the room and you got something communicated uh, basically to the point that um, especially now obviously with COVID and work from home and this kind of uh, new challenge yeah. communication is becoming uh, a bigger problem. Have you found any uh, what things have you done that have, have helped that or, or things that you've done to combat that the COVID experience as so, a so I think that we were lucky enough to build a company and make sure that people, you know, collaborate and they know how to work together in the pre-COVID life. So uh, we had a pretty good communication um, structure in place before that. Obviously, we switched to collaboration tools and relying more on, you know, uh, the Zoom and and the teams uh, of the world in order to to do all this kind of stuff. But we did have to uh, put a better kind of communication structure and, you know, really. Uh, bring it to perfection uh, to some degree because it's nothing like sitting in the same room and you know meeting with people face to face, have this water cooler uh, discussion and have meeting rooms and everyone kind of sitting in the same room and, and, and talking. Um, but I can tell you that it's it's not um, it's not impossible and it's not as bad as I uh, thought it would be. Um, and it really took the organization no time to get used to this new situation. And, you know, now, now we feel like it's business as usual. Uh, we don't see any yeah. any impact at all. Now, what's team size? Just for curiosity, what's team size now? Well, about 55 now. Yeah. Yeah. And did you see that? You saw that tipping point when you moved past seven, that it kind of got beyond you and your ability to lead? It's seven, it's still manageable. I think that when you pass the 25, it's the first um, yeah. kind of, uh, it's first challenge. 50 is yet another one. Yeah. And I guess that 100, you know, I still know everyone by name and I'm having, you know, some even personal discussions uh, with them. I, I, I know their kids' names and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, uh, still at 50, um, I guess that... Next challenge would be probably 100 or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I think even, uh, I think it's anthropology studies have said, once you get up to around 120 people, it's about at the limit of what your brain can uh, really know and remember. So yeah. they, they even theorize that most tribes back in the hunter-gatherer days were no longer, were no bigger than 120 because at that point you really can't remember everyone's name. You don't really know who to trust, you know that kind of thing. So I would imagine that you're right. There's a gap where there's going to be a, a new hurdle, a new challenge right there. Um, I'm curious for you, just going back to you and kind of um, understanding you as the founder, what are your, what does your schedule look like these days? Um, so I wake up very early um, because again, I'm, I'm based in the East coast and uh, you know, 
some of the management is still based back in Tel Aviv, like you know, the product, the R&D, and some of the support operations are, are still happening back in Tel Aviv, and there is seven hours difference. So if I want to, to make sure that I can make all those meetings on a weekly basis, I, I need to make, I need to start early. So normally 7.30 or 8 a.m. I'm, you know, I'm on calls. Before that, obviously I need to wake up, uh, do my morning jog uh, two or three times a week, um, you know, get, get the kids ready uh, before school, and obviously you know, check my calendar, check some emails uh, even before the day starts. Okay. Then I'm normally taking, you know, the meetings from 8 to, um, to 5 p.m. and from 5 to around 7, I'm, you know, doing some personal uh, personal work, keeping it as a personal time to, to work on the stuff that I need to work, uh, work on. And the rest of the day is just filled with meetings and uh, internally, externally. Sure. Yeah, leadership. Yeah, I'm curious, how do you... How do you filter your priorities in terms of, I'm sure there's a thousand meetings you could, you could take, right? And in, in, and in different orders, you know, uh, how do you decide which meetings in a day are most important and when um, versus just a free for all, everything that comes across me is, is my yes. So, so obviously the management meetings are the most important ones. I'm trying, like, I'm trying to take all the management meetings on Monday. Like I'm starting the week with speaking with all the, the executives, um, make sure that we are all aligned and we know how what the priorities for the week uh, looks like. Mm. Um, on each day, I'm starting the day with a kind of a daily huddle with, again, with all the manager, three minutes, kind of status updates uh, for each function, just to make sure that, again, we're all pushing in the same direction, that we're all focused on the, the right things and, and we are aligned. For the rest of the meetings, my, my guideline is that if I don't have to be on the meeting, I will probably won't be on the meeting and find someone on my behalf that can uh, that can take the meeting. And if I do, um, I obviously I'll, try, I'll keep it as short as possible. Sure. From priorities perspective, um, I'm always trying to take the meetings that are, um, that are more outbound the way I see it. Like, you know, I'll take the, the meetings that has to do with um, customers. Like I'll try and meet with uh, with customers or other customer success and customer uh, advocates first before I take any, any other meetings. So it's management, uh, customers, and then partnerships and uh, strategic alliances and stuff like that. And then I will take the, the internal meetings. Got it. Has that been a process for you of being more strategic with, with your time as this company has grown and what you say yes to versus what you say no to? Or did you already have a philosophy from the beginning that served you well? No, I didn't. I was, I was pretty scared in the beginning. It took me some time to learn how to, uh, how to manage my time and how to set the right, and how to say no. Like, like you yeah. said, I think that one of the most important things that you need to learn is how to say, no, I'm not going to be part of this meeting or, um, uh, even question if we need the meeting at all, uh, mm-hmm. which is, uh, you know, always, uh, always a challenge. With time and, you know, with mostly with building the management, like, you know, the point that you are not a single person or in the point that you are not the kind of chief everything officer of the company, but you're becoming the real chief executive officer and you have strong management um, that is working with you in order to achieve the company goals. It's becoming easier because then you know that you need um, a weekly with your uh, executives and you know that they can take care of the, of the day-to-day and really leaves you with time to to focus on you know working on your company and not in your company and what is important you know what do we need in order to get to the next uh, to the next step um you know working with with executive on the plan and execution but not be too involved with with the day to day Uh, i'm so glad you brought that up because that's that's kind of where this is leading i was curious about if you're if you're taking meetings all day, right, those are mostly going to be working in your company. You're putting out fires, you're giving strategic directions, those kinds of things. When, ha- when do you have time to step outside of it and work on the company? Be a visionary for the future or ask critical questions, questions about the present? What, what does that space look like for you? So it's normally the second half of the day, like I said, normally until 4 or 5 p.m. every day I will um, 
work in the company. Um, uh, and again, most of the meetings that I'm that I'm taking are not to set out files, are mostly to support um, you know the sales motion, sales operation, build relationship with partners, with customers. Uh, which again, it's working in the company, but it's something that uh, that you will always uh, have to do uh, the way uh, yeah. I see it. And and the rest of the day, the second uh, half of the day is mostly kind of um, and, and Fridays, by the way. Friday is a day that I'm trying to keep because they're not walking back in Tel Aviv, so I, I have the the morning open, for example. Yeah. So I'm trying to block a uh, few hours in order to you know strategize and. You know, just sit in the balcony and, you know, um, think about things, reading sometimes. I'm, you know, I can just use the time to read a book. Uh, yeah. In the middle or at the end of the day during work time, you know, to yeah. kind of, you know, open my mind and get some more ideas about um, things that we can do. I love that. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Uh, because you mentioned the books, we, we typically like to ask, hey, what are you what are you reading right now? Or what would you, what would you recommend other founders of a fast growing company, you know, pay attention to or read uh, any book recommendations that you, you'd like to share? So I guess I'm not, will not be the first one to, to say that I believe that the hard thing about hard things is, uh, is a mandatory book for every uh, founder, CEO uh, out there. I think it's, it's an amazing book. I've, I've learned a lot out of it. And recently, I was reading the, the Exponential Organization, which I think is uh, is an amazing book, really talking about you know, how to build uh, exponential organization, organizations at scales, and organizations that fits to the current uh, the current successful models that we see out there, like Waze, Airbnb, and uh, Uber, and, and the rest. I love that. And I'm curious, too, just getting to know you, man, like what what makes you come most alive professionally? What, what 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 kind of day do you have? What kind of skill did you get to use, or or like what what makes you just feel like you love what you do? It's always going back to the product and the engineering part. You know, I'm I'm geek in nature. This is how this is how I started. So you know, when I'm involved in a great conversation around you know a new model or a new kinds of uh, product or super smart feature, and I'm fortunate enough to be surrounded with brilliant people they are much smarter and better coder than me. So, you know, being sti- still being a- be able to be involved in some way and in, in the discussion and kind of absorb the kinds of, you know, the way they think and the way they take the, the technology and leading the technology is uh, super fascinating for me. These are my best days, the days that I'm not just talking process, HR, partnership, sales and stuff like that, but when I go back to the, to the origins, to my passion, which is technology. Oh, I love that. And so what would, what would be the opposite? What would be the kryptonite that when these kinds of things happen in a day, it's just an immediate suck on energy, um, the, a drain, right? What, what kind of, what kind of things would that be? For me, a drain is always, you know, dealing with financial and legal and process and all these kinds of stuff that, um, you know, they're really, um, Fundraising, you know, if I'm in fundraising, I'm normally miserable because it's kind of, you know, need to focus with the, the most not very important, but um, the most tedious and time sucking and energy sucking part of running a business. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm curious then. If we go back to what what excites you the most is what you get to geek out about in the in the technical side and whatever. Uh, what what's got you right now? Like what's what's the future that's got you most excited about? Maybe what you guys are, are working on. Obviously, if there's something you can't share, that's fine. But like, what what kind of things have your mind right now in an occupied and exciting way? So obviously, I'm very fascinated. You know. <laughs> You know, most of our, our technology is obviously already based on machine learning and AI, but I'm always kind of surprised and um, and fascinated with, you know, how powerful is this tool um, and what else can we do and to what other kinds of um, untapped domain we can uh, we can extend to by using, you know, what we have, what we've built already, but, you know, with, with, with some... Uh, extra extra some other ideas and extra features that we can uh, that we can add so i would definitely say um, ai and what you can do with with ai these days 
Yeah. How would you describe, I'm curious, since we have someone like you on the podcast, which we don't always get someone representing this, this side of, of uh, the industries right now, how far or how advanced would you say we are currently with AI and machine learning? Are we, is it still in its uber, uber infancy? Is it starting to grow up a little bit and get, you know, exciting or is it pretty mature? How would you describe AI and machine learning at this point? I think it's pretty. I think it's pretty mature. I think it's very, very exciting. I think it's um, it's a powerful tool that um, I see many companies that are not even super technical by nature, kind of using in their arsenal in order to tackle uh, tackle problems. Um, and it's uh, it's magical in a way, you know. Um, AI is its mysterious way, especially if you go to deep learning and technologies like that that you can. But you basically literally just take a huge um, chunk of data, you, you just throw it on the machine and you say, figure it out. <laughs> okay, I think that's a simple way to kind of describe what, what it's doing. And the machine is kind of, you know, coming back with, um, you know, okay, I know how to do it. Um, wow. So obviously, you need to collect the data, you need to model the data, you need to fine-tune it, you need to run many trials and errors before you get to the point that it's actually working for you. Sure. Um, but it's not the traditional kinds of coding of us writing lines of codes and telling the machine what to do. We just tell them, go learn. Well, I'm curious, even in your space, so let me back up. In a broader conversation that, I, that I've overheard ongoing around AI machine learning, there seems to be two camps. Those that see nothing but exciting, good things ahead with where this is going and those that are positive we have uh, we have started the process of our own destruction right yeah, skynet skynet's happening yeah skynet uh where do you fall and then i'm even curious into cyber technology you know i imagine for every advanced you know ai machine learning and what you guys are doing there mm -hmm. could be someone also taking advantage of that technology to make it harder right with deep fakes and stuff like that to be able to pass your technology so yeah, I'm just curious how you how you feel about the future of it all. Mm. So uh, I think it's like I get it. It's the fifth industrial revolution um, that is wow. you know that we are kind of experiencing. It's in the making, and uh, and we are all uh, part of it. Um, again, I think it will be um, the kind of technology that any companies out there will have to to adopt. It will have major impacts on, on us as individuals um, and, and on our world. Like you, like you said, and you nailed it, like it's not something that only us, you know, in the cybersecurity uh, space, it's not something that just us, the defenders, are using right. in order to stop targeted and advanced attacks. The adversaries, are, the threat actors, the, the guys that we are um, no, trying to, that we are against are using and applying AI in order to craft um, better and much more automated cyber attacks. They kind mm. of put it on the on autopilot, uh, not in a scripted way, in a smart way. Wow. Man, this reminds me so much of a conversation we had with the CEO of Pindrop. Are you familiar with Pindrop and what they do with uh, phone voice technology? No. So they're they're similar in the in a cyber technology, but they're focusing on in specific voice technology. So when someone calls in to try to get your information to a bank or something like that, wow. uh, they use voice print. I think is what they call it, or try to identify your your unique voice fingerprint and that kind of stuff. And we're having the That's similar. Yeah. yeah. Oh, super smart. Both of you guys. You're just coming at different vehicles. Um, so maybe you guys would be would geek out together on, on talking about this. But it's so it's just fascinating to me. Again, it almost reminds me of uh, when I was reading about the the Cold War, and it was a race of technology that every time, let's say, the United States had an advance, well, then the Russians would have to create technology to try to overcome that technology advance, and then it was just a ping pong game. And it feels like it's probably like that in the cybersecurity space, where every time you come up with a new defense to the malware or the attack, they try to upgrade the attack and the back and forth. Is that kind of what it feels like? For sure. Um, and and now it's even, uh, you know, we see some nation-grade kinds of uh, cyber tools uh, out there. In some ways, there is a cold war, um, as you can see with the election that is up and coming and stuff sure. like that. And, you know, nations are using cyber as a, as a weapon. Um, yeah. I'm sure, you know, most of them are keeping some, some stuff to... 
to a doomsday uh, scenario as well. But but it's there, like you know, we can't um, we can't ignore it. Um, it's not something that we can we can stop uh, from happening. Yeah. Just need to make sure that uh, that we're ready. But it's definitely on a on a whole new level these mm. days. Wow. Yeah, I'm curious. This is uh, just thinking about you as a leader. You know, the majority of the leaders that we've met, they're they're born and raised in U.S. of A. And, and you have a unique perspective because you're working here in Atlanta and here in the States. I'm curious about uh, just any leadership differences or unique things that you've learned um, or even just ways in which you perceive the world and maybe even ways that you see your executives in Tel Aviv lead people versus the States. Any just differences there that you found or is it for the most part, you know, the same? Shoot us straight. Shoot yes. us straight. Where where do we suck? Go ahead. We know we, we know we're bad somewhere. That's what we want to learn. Yeah. Um, so I'll give you my my point of view on that. Obviously, there is a there is a, there is a pretty um, major cultural difference between Israel and, and and the states. You know, Israel is a very small country. The U.S. is a very large um, country. Um, you asked about the differences, so. I think there is a reason why many cybersecurity startups or startups in general are kind of, you know, starting um, back in Tel Aviv and only then going after um, world domination, which is mostly means, you know, mm-hmm. moving to the US and building there. I think that management style and company style back in Tel Aviv is more kinds of, um, is moving faster, but in a more scrappier way. And when you come to the U.S., you see the things are much more structured and process-oriented. Mm. Like here, there are playbooks for everything. If you need yeah. to do something, there is a playbook for it. If you tell someone back in Tel Aviv that there is a playbook to do something, you will you will not even understand what what are you talking about. So, what I really like about the U.S. and I have I really, really like, and, and I'm, I'm personally learning a lot from the experience here, is um, the way U.S. leaders are thinking, the way they are operating, and the kind of skill set that they have uh, to help build things for scale. Mm. Mm-hmm. So you see, okay, at first I thought you are saying it the opposite, but so you, you see the playbooks as being uh, a helpful thing. A mandatory thing. A mandatory thing. Got it. Got it. Uh, man, that's that's really cool. Where have you seen any uh, interesting cultural differences just in how we lead people? Like, uh, is is one approach more direct, and the other one maybe takes more feelings into account? You know what I mean? Like, how, what has yeah. that been like? Yeah, so I think you asked and answered the question at the same time. <laughs> yeah. 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 Moving on, next question. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, obviously, um, the. The way business is being conducted here is much more uh, polite um, in a way, like, you know, really taking people's feeling. uh, It's not that, you know, back there we're not taking people's feeling into consideration. It's just the way that, and and I'll give you a good example. There was one one occasion when once you were taking the... the company on a on a company trip, like we we're choosing a location. We went to Italy. We went to um, uh, Morocco uh, last year. So for us, it's kind of a, um, an opportunity to put everyone in the same place, like you know, Tel Aviv, UK, US, whatever you, everyone in the same place, having yeah. fun for a week. Okay. Yeah. Um, and there was one occasion that you know I was speaking with the with the Israeli, with a couple of the Israeli. Uh, leaders, team leaders, and then I remember that one of the the US guys was coming to me and say, "Why you guys were arguing?" Mm. And I was like, "We weren't arguing; we were talking." And then I realized that you know the way we communicate, the directness, the, the tone of voice, the body language. You know, yeah. um, especially we are in a kind of a very live and uh, kind of discussion. Yeah. For, for the typical U.S. leader, it seems like argument. It's not uh, yeah. subtle enough. It's not polite uh, enough. Uh, so, especially, so, especially because you located yourself in the South, right? Like we're, we're that's even inside of our country. We're even known as being more polite and more. Yeah. 
which doesn't mean we're nicer, right? It just means that it just means that maybe we're not as direct sometimes with how we really feel. But you go northeast, Brooklyn, New York, those kinds of areas. Which is maybe a, a little more challenge. Direct. It's huge challenge for someone like me that is coming from a very direct kind of culture that people are just saying what they think. You know, exactly. people are kicking kicking around the bush, and you're like, just you know, somebody said, just say it. <laughs> it will be so easy it will you know can help us move so much faster don't, don't don't care about like don't worry about my feelings i won't get help if you tell me that you know you think yeah. that we need to do something differently yes um, don't don't always expect me to understand it from the subtext you know i'm coming from a different culture we, we have sure. we have subtext uh, but just just say it. and this is what i'm trying to teach and, and it's really working for me because once they understand that this is the expectation Mm. And one of the things that I'm doing when I'm hiring new people and new leaders is kind of saying, let me, let me explain you how to work with me. Okay. Mm. I want it to be super clear what it means to work with me, what's my expectations, you know, what I take as an offense and what's not. Yeah. And it's really helping to kind of, you know, put people on the same page regarding to, because i give you another, another story. When I started, um, I was kind of, um, I was sending an email to someone and, and, and then he was asking someone else to ask me if I'm, if I'm mad at him. And I was like, I said, no, why? He said, because you sent a, an email with one line. <laughs> and then I was like, you know, because, and then you learn that, you know, in the US they always start with, I hope that everything is well. And you know, that, like there's a very, <laughs> very, very long kind of, um, pretext yeah. to uh, to yes. what they actually want to say. And, and and I sometimes was asking people for information or for something on the subject line of the email. And here it was considered very old or very kind of, you know, um, yes. made people, people worry. So this is why I was wanted to make sure like, you know, hiring the, the leadership and hiring the team that they understand that, you know, th this is the, the fact that I'm writing a one-liner email or the fact that I'm, straight to the point and there is not too much small talk or chit chat at the beginning of our meetings. Right. And man, that we are. Oh, I love it. That's what's so fascinating about being in a global economy now, right? Yeah. Is it's also what makes it rich and beautiful, but complicated because you unknowingly can trip over cultural, cultural taboos that, that you have no idea about. Right. Uh, and it's even funny hearing you reflect back on it. And I'm thinking about the emails we send. I'm like, yeah, I naturally think I need to put something nice in there. I need to almost ask how the weather is or yeah. hope the kids are great and put an exclamation mark in there somewhere so that it's not just what I actually want to email you about, which is, can you send me the dang report or whatever it is. Exactly. The machine exactly. learning on how many times I've said, hope your day goes well. You know? Yes. <laughs> I don't really just care. Say, let, let's, let's respect like, you know what? I will assume you always care. You know, that's my basic assumption. So let's skip that part. I know that you care. We're working together. We care about each other. Spare me the time of reading those two or three lines at the beginning of every email and just tell me what you need. Yes. You know, what's interesting. I was, re I happened to be reading um, a book called The Splendid and the Vile, which was a replay or recount of uh, Winston Churchill's experience of leading Britain during uh, the German invasion. And it was really fascinating because you got the, they basically pieced together like his own journal entries with his, you know, assistant with his secretary of defense. And you got this real picture of what it looked like day by day as they moved through this crisis. And one of the things he was a, the biggest kind of proponent of was shortening their communications, especially, and he said in a wartime. So he's like, if we're in a time of peace, maybe you, this is a three-page report. He's like, I don't have time for that. <laughs> and he was constantly at the beginning marking stuff out like, this is just fluff. This is flattery. I don't care. Get to the point. I've got so many reports to get to. Uh, and it sounds similar to you, but we've, we've been even helping leaders with that kind of thinking as well. Like, we're kind of in a wartime, right? With the pandemic and the, the squeeze of resources and the dispersing of teams. It's like, we need to learn from people like that now more than ever how to have effective communication, how to not, you know, miscommunicate, but also how not to waste people's time when it's probably really valuable that you just go ahead and get to the point. Exactly. 
Uh, I love that. So what, here's, I would love to almost get you in that headspace that you're in on a Friday morning where you're thinking about the company, working on the company, not just in it for a second. As you look back, and it could be even recently, what are a few things that you would say you would attribute to your company's success? Is it decision, certain decisions you guys have made, a culture you've created, a strategy you've implemented? Like, What kind of things do you think are the, the key ingredients that have really led to where you guys are today? To be honest, I don't think that you can... The way I see it, you need so many stars aligned in order to these things that called startup company to be successful that I find it very hard to attribute it to a specific thing or things. Mm. I can stand here and tell you that we built an amazing culture, which is true. And that people really care about um, the problem that we are solving and care about each other and they're working great together. Um, obviously, we met the market, you know, timing. Uh, we met the market in the right time with the right product to solve um, a real pain. Um, but at the end of the day, um, I think it's a combination of uh, surround yourself with the right people in the right time and a huge chunk of luck that you need on your side in order to be successful. Oh man! Well, you echo what most successful people say. Uh, so that's 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 interesting. People usually attribute some element, large or small, to luck, which is just interesting to me. There's so much luck. There's so much luck that you can't ignore it. Like um, like I said, the star need to be aligned in a very so many moving parts. So many um, reasons why startup will fail. Why a company. Uh, would fail, especially in, in the infancy kinds of uh, state, um, that you have to be lucky. Do you think you can increase your chances of being lucky or decrease your ch- chances of being lucky through the work you do while you're waiting for the luck or anything like that? I think you can increase your chances to be lucky if you're persistent and you're investing lots of hard work, Um, if you kind of try to stay focused and follow your gut feeling, because, you know, you can read many things about successful and unsuccessful kind of people and uh, and ventures. At the end of the day, um, trusting your guts and really following what what you feel inside, what's really burning inside, that's, I think that's, uh, that's the most, important yeah. this is what contributing to luck uh, the way i see it because then it's your fate like you you're making the decision um you're yeah. throwing your guts and um it increases increasing your chances to to succeed it's not somebody else's opinion yeah. or, or idea it's what you really think should be done yeah i love that and, and because you're surrounded with a with you know with ideas and advisors from people that are kind of you know sitting on the bench it can be friends it can be colleagues it can be investors it can be whatever everyone has an opinion everyone knows based on a company that he knows that was successful before what's the yeah don't listen to everyone like it's very important listen to everything read everything you can but you know still make your decision yeah well you have that innate domain knowledge not just about the industry, but you about your product, about your people. That's some of the stuff where it's like, man, even the the executives decision making, they just they have some they have a gut instinct that's pretty refined, I think. And that's what we we hear when we're interviewing them. Interesting. I was thinking about the mix. And I do think there's a level of timing that we are going to say is luck. There's the culture that you create. And there's the people that you find. Uh, I heard at least those three and I'm like, those are three things that we typically hear a, a lot and we'll hear the founder celebrate some person that was so, so helpful. I was, I was thinking more about like, what lessons have you learned in hiring? You know, did you, did you make some, some poor hires in those first seven? Uh, and then you had to learn, you know, some, some things. I, I wonder just, you know, your journey thus far through getting to 50, um, what have you learned about hiring and finding the right people and getting them in the right spot? You know, that's such a contingent piece to success. 
and to your ability to sleep well at night because you got a good leader who can do that thing without you having to be all over it. What have you learned about that? Um, wow, I think I'm still learning. To be to be honest, I think it's something yeah, that is is a, is a continuous that. kinds of uh, process. Like it, I think that I've learned two two major things too far. First is that the history is the best prediction of the future. Like when you are evaluating someone, when you're speaking with someone, I've learned that if he was never amazing, if he was never, he never aced it in any company that he worked for, he was not appreciated, promoted, the chances that it will happen with your company are somehow close to zero. So really, really focus on kind of looking for people that were successful in what they were doing. It doesn't have to be the exact same thing, but look for, for this kind of approach and mentality of, you know, being successful and, and being self-motivated, uh, yeah. Yeah, can I pause you there? Would you uh, would you say you'd rather find somebody who is successful doing something unrelated than somebody who was somewhat successful but really had all the experience in that thing? 100%, especially if he's coming with the right kinds of uh, motivation. I want to see the spark in the eyes. I want to hear him saying, hey, this is something that I really want to do. Yeah, really, really want to do. And I'm willing to work very hard. I know that I don't have the full skill set and the experience, but I'm willing to put the time and the energy in order to get them. And again, if it was proven to be to do it in the past, um, I think that that my experience taught me that giving them the opportunity in most cases, they will not fail. I love it. I'm curious, what does... What does people development look like for your company right now? How are you guys going about um, training, developing, whatever uh, way you would think about it? How, what does the people development look like for you? It's a good question. So as the company goes, like, you know, when I am having one, my one-on-one with the, with the team, uh, it's a question that I always ask. Like, you know, as we grow, where do you see yourself fitting our um, organization? How do you see yourself going in the organization? Um, some people obviously are looking for a more, more responsibility and a managerial position in the kind of current uh, specific uh, practice, like you know, individual contributor to become a team leader and stuff like that. Some people have different things in mind. I can tell you that recently we kind of helped to develop and shift someone from a support position to a QA uh, development, to be a QA developer, because this was his real passion. Um, so we are really, really supporting, and I, I really, really believe that you know, um, even in the cross-functional kinds of situation, we should be an enabler. Even though we are a small company, and normally it's not that uh, typical for a smaller company, but to, to allow these uh, these things to to happen, uh, and and make sure you know, again, it's going back to the point that you need to make sure that people know that um, the company is. And I will always say to, to all the people that I speak with, the company is a platform for them to, you know, to grow mm. and, and, and and get to their full potential, whatever it will be. Yeah, yeah, and, I love that. And when you position things like that, when you describe the company, not just as something that you come to work for or you're part of, but it's a platform for growth. And I said, like, you know, if you have the potential, if you have it in you, I want to make sure that what we build um, will enable it. And then you see people kind of acting and thinking in a, in a different way. Yeah. So what, yeah, what are maybe what are a few of those things that you have designed that would facilitate people becoming that best version of themselves? Nothing, nothing. Just give, just tell them, Hey, I, I believe in you. I trust you. This is what we are doing. You know, at some point, even you need to go and find your opportunity and you tell us what you want uh, to be. Yeah. Um, in some cases, we can help train you because there is a more senior person in this position and, um, you know, they can body up and, and, and you can help him kind of um, get up to speed. Yeah. In some cases, it's just like, okay, you can you can go and and, and do it, but you will need to, to teach yourself in a, yeah. in a self-learning mode. It's awesome. Not always we can train people or put them on a training program in order to become something that they want to do. Something sometimes they will need to take it on themselves. Yeah. Well, that ownership is always positive too. If you get the ownership, you likely are going to get the result anyway in all things, whether it's the goal and objective or it's their personal development. 
think that's positive. Uh, I was interested in structure and your, your thoughts on even the exponential organization and how are you guys structuring it? it does it, you know, really, are you, are you following this, like trying to create a more flat organization? Are you, you know, do you have a manager hierarchy in your mind? Um, how is that forming in your mind and kind of what's your, your philosophy there? It's a great question. Our philosophy is more flat. Like we have hierarchy in place, but we keep it to the minimum possible. Um, we believe in autonomous teams, uh, which yeah. is a model where people can come together, um, you know, try to assemble all the required skill set in order to solve a problem. Um, this is what we are pushing. This is this is how we are operating. So our engineering kind of organization is flat. Everyone are reporting to the VPR and D uh, to that extent and really working with uh, what we what we call autonomous uh, autonomous teams. Yeah, I like that a lot. Uh, any philosophies on creating a high performing team? Um, or, or discovering a high performing team, you know, and it could be the discovery as much as it is the creation. So, so I think it really depends and it really changed by the way, like, you know, when you hire millennials, like, you know, what's, what's drive them and what's, you know, kind of, you know, get yeah. them to the uh, full extent from a performance perspective is really, really different from, uh, from other people. I think that in order to to get to this point that you're maximizing performance, um, the key ingredient is trust. Is let people know that you that you trust them to do the job. Absolutely. And hold them accountable, but um, give them the recognition and the ownership, like you said, on on the stuff that they are working on, knowing that them as a group, they are responsible for everything from the design, thinking, testing, building, and deploying, uh, and post-deployment deployment of this kind of stuff. Um, I realized that when you kind of throw this responsibility and tell them, I, I know you can do it, I trust you, you can do it, this is, um, this is how you get the best results. The alternative is to micromanage people to the, to the point that they just find it um, not interesting, yeah. not fun. Yeah, I love that. It feels like this is very much in common with uh, several of the, the founders we've interviewed so far where the philosophy teams seems to tip more towards the freedom side, the, the empower my employees. You know, um, one of our one of our guests, uh, their their motto inside their company was giving their employees the keys to the Ferrari, where they're saying, like, we built the Ferrari. That's our product. That's our service. And we want to give you the keys to it, like empower you to drive, empower you to execute on your ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, it sounds like a very similar philosophy for you guys as well, where you're willing to take the cost of maybe the mistakes they might make along the way for the upside of an empowered, autonomous group of, of individuals and teams. Is that right? Yeah. And you need to have some tolerance to mistakes uh, because right. uh, when you take this, uh, this approach, um, sometimes the, the beginning is... Um, is a bit chaotic um, until you kind of find a way to to make it right. It's like um, a startup on its own. Uh, yeah. I think in general, like you know, building the right processes and these kind of things, it's like it's a product inside a product um, to some uh, to some degree. So yes, you need uh, you need some tolerance for mistakes, but you need to to have a very clear definition of what are the mistakes that we can uh, live with and what are the mistakes that we uh, that we can't. Mm. Cool. We don't Great. like production. This is not a mistake that we can uh, tolerate. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah, everybody seems to love, love the idea of uh, giving freedom and ownership and, and, you know, autonomy to their people, but yeah. you're tested by the mistakes. You're tested by how you respond to the mistakes because often the first time there's a mistake, they take all the power back and they say, well, nope, no more autonomy yeah. for you <laughs> versus yeah. – building in the expectation there's going to be mistakes so therefore how do we how do we respond to them what are acceptable ones what are unacceptable ones you know one of our one of our friends who is a CTO of several company tech companies out west he talked about the acceptable mistakes were ones which they could still point to a company value that they were they were exhibiting so that those were guiding their decisions they're like you'll never be fired for a mistake you made 
that you could show us reflected our values as a company. Yeah. The ones you get in trouble for are the ones that were clearly not in our, our value set. And I thought that was an interesting way of, of seeing acceptable mistakes versus unacceptable mistakes. Have you guys seen anything similar to that? Yeah, well, we, our core values are published on the website. One of them is be fast, but don't hurry. Um, yeah. We want to move fast, but don't make, um, you know, the kind of mistakes that uh, that we can't uh, tolerate. And again, the best uh, example is don't break production. Don't make, you know, don't push anything that will make our customers kind of um, pay, the, pay the price. And I was getting some inspiration from, I was reading The, the Lean Startup, another uh, great book uh, out yeah. there, when he describes that, you know, um, when they bring on a new developer, he needs to push code to production on his first day. And, and he says in the book, if production broke, it's not the developer fault, it's our fault. Wow. Mm. Our kind of, our process on how code is being tested and pushed to production is flawed. We were kind of um, enabling yeah. this, uh, which was very fascinating the way I, I, I saw it. And we are taking kind of the, the same approach to say, if someone, developers will make mistakes always. Like, you know, I was a developer myself. There is no such thing um, writing a, a perfect code. Yeah. We need to find the perfect process or as perfect as, as, as possible to find those mistakes before they are facing our customers. Yeah, that's good. Uh, I like that a lot. Uh, let's hit the lightning round. Let's hit the lightning round. Uh, five questions for you, man. Uh, question number one. If you can ingrain one message into your organization, what would it be? I say it will be always challenge our ways. Oh, good. Interesting. What does that mean to you? Don't assume that uh, we should keep doing stuff just because this is how we were doing it so far. If you think that something is not right, raise your hand and say, hey, we, we need to stop doing this thing. Yeah, I love that. It does. It ties to the see something, say something, even what you'd be trying to train the users on. Um, yeah. yeah, that's that's awesome. Uh, question number two, what's the best advice you've received thus far about growing your business? And what's the worst advice you've received? Uh, so many advices just to try to fill up. <laughs> I, think, I think the best one was take care for your team. They will take care for the rest. Um, uh, I think that was the best. I think the worst was, um, no, I, I mentioned that I started this company on my own and, and the best advice, the, the worst advice back then that I, I was getting is you will never succeed on your own. You need co-founders, like, you know, don't go out mm. the gate just by yourself, uh, build a team before you start. And if there are solo entrepreneurs out there, tell them just, just start, just do it and figure it out as you go. Yeah. Love that. That is awesome. Uh, number three, what causes you the most worry uh, when leading your organization? What causes me the most worry? Um, I think it's keeping the startup culture. Like, you know, as the team goes and we are hiring more people and, you know, sometimes I'm not even involved in the hiring process to make sure that we're bringing the right people from a cultural perspective. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, what's your current, uh, we say call it the, the BHAG, using Jim Collins' BHAG, big, hairy, audacious goal. Uh, what's the current big, hairy, audacious goal for you personally? Uh, it could roll into the company too, because those might be one of the same, but for, for you, what is it? For me, uh, um, it's a good question. I, I wanna, I wanna kind of end this venture the same way I started. I wanna kind of you know, keep, keep being the same person all along. Yeah. Not having the company. Actually, we're using BHAG, like we're using the same exact kinds of uh, term. Yeah. Um, our BHAG is in mailbox count. How many mailboxes we are protecting? Yeah. I can't disclose the number, but it's a, it's a very big number. Nice. Yes. Come and on. We put it. We, we put it in a monitor on the wall, like when you when you when we were in the offices. When you walk, you can see the actual number, and it's kind of a live representation yep. of the protected mailboxes. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's cool. Beautiful. 
Yeah, little side tangent for the for Drew and I, we've been able to interview you, Pindrop, uh, one other person leveraging kind of blockchain, and it's, it's it's all during this season. This feels like the, like the season of letting people know like there is good work happening in in our world right now. There are people trying to protect us. Yes, and uh, it's just a, it's a positive positive thing. So thank you and your company for for fighting on the the, the behalf of our mailboxes. Um. Uh, last question. If you could hop in and, into a DeLorean, you're going to go back to the future. Uh, you're going to go back to your past. Tell yourself one thing. Uh, when would you go back and what would it be? Um, I think I'll go back to day one and it would be embrace the struggle um because it's it's a never ending like you know at any given point you think that you're facing the most kinds of um uh, the biggest you know so something very very like you know from fundraising to you know hiring your, uh, 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 there is always this hope that at some point it will be easier better right. um the answer is no it's not it's not gonna be easier we're going to be new challenges, bigger. Just learn to to embrace this struggle and, and understand that this is the lifestyle. And if you don't like it, maybe it's not for you. I love that. Yeah, I love that. It's so good. Embrace the struggle. It's not going away. So learn to enjoy it. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's so good. Well. Thank you so much for, for taking time, obviously, in your busy schedule to be here, to share your information with the next generation of business builders listening to this podcast. And just tell us, where could uh, where can they find out more about you, your company, and stay up to date on what you guys are doing? You can go to ironscales.com, I-R-O-N-S-C-A-L-E-S.com. You can find me on, on LinkedIn. Um, happy to help. Happy to be in touch. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we're, we're excited to watch your company continue to grow and protect mailboxes all over the world. And yes. um, thank you for doing that. Like Jordan said, we're, we're comforted to know that uh, as many people are out there trying to, to harm people and businesses, that there are as many or hopefully more people like yourself that are um, keeping us safe. So thank you, buddy. Thank you, guys. Really yeah, thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.